Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Year of the Bible is a series of Cal St. G Academy. Each episode will cover a new book of the Bible in a concise, in-depth, and ultimately edifying way. These lectures are recorded live each week at Calvary Church in New York City. The book of Exodus begins where Genesis left off. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in Egypt. They've gone from an intimate family of Jacob's 12 sons to becoming a great nation. The book opens with the rise to power of a new pharaoh, one who knows nothing of Joseph and all that he had done for Egypt. This new pharaoh sees the Israelites' growth in numbers as a serious threat, and so he enslaves and oppresses them. So Exodus goes on to show three things. How God miraculously freed the Israelites through his servant Moses, his covenant with Moses and the giving of the law, and three, the construction of the tabernacle. Now as for the structure of the book, unlike in Genesis with its Toledot formula, remember I talked about the Toledot formula quite a bit, and that really is just a helpful, it's a recurring genealogical formula that introduces and connects different sections of the book. The Toledot was, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations of Terah, Abraham's son, or even his father. But for Exodus, there's no obvious way to divide its parts. The best way we can say that it's been put together is that there are this diverse material that has been loosely unified into a chronological composition. So it's this diverse material that's been put together chronologically. So, that said, and this was all just what I just said right now, but we're going to move on to our thousand-foot view, the theological view, the same thing we did last week. So, like last week, we're going to start off with this, and this is the section that I want you to remember. Again, if you're a note-taker, this is the part that I want you to jot down. Then we'll move on to the 100-foot view, and for that section, again, just let the narrative wash over you, and maybe jot down a point here or two that interests you. So there are three things I'm going to go over in this section, and they're right up there. The first is the liberation of the people of God in Egypt, the giving of the law, and the construction of the tabernacle. It's going to be short and it's sweet. Again, in the 100-foot view, I'll flesh it all out. So first, the exodus from Egypt. This is the chief act of salvation in all of the Old Testament, and it is the paradigm of God's way with God's people, not just for that time, but for all times. I'm going to say that again. The Exodus 
is the paradigm of God's way with God's people. Not just for that time, but for all times. In this narrative, we see God make a way where there was no way. A way out of nowhere. And we see God as victorious over Pharaoh. A competing deity. And a personification of the powers of sin and death. Again, I'll flush that out in a minute. Second, the giving of the law. In the law that is given, we see the revelation of the will of God. We also see the creation of the what's called the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant that God makes with Noah, or with Moses, sorry. Now, unlike the Abrahamic covenant that we talked about last week, this covenant is not made up of promises solely from the divine side. It's not solely a top-down pact. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. On no small level, this is an if-then agreement. God pledges the land to his people if they obey. Do you hear the difference between that and the covenant we talked about last week? Last week it's top-down. It's the promises of God to us, and there, there's no conditions. Here, there's an if-then agreement. And you might summarize the Mosaic Covenant in this line from the Bible. Do this, and you shall live. Finally, thirdly, the construction of the tabernacle. As the Israelites are preparing to leave Sinai and head toward the promised land, God provides a blueprint for the building of his house among them. The tabernacle would be the place of God's presence among his people during the upcoming wilderness wanderings and beyond. So those are the three things I really want you to zero in on. And if you didn't get them, this is what the 100-foot view is for. I'm going to really try to flesh that out. So, we've had the 1,000-foot theological view. Now on to the 100-foot detailed view of the book. And again, let this part wash over you. As I said at the beginning, the book of Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. The people of God grew from a 12-ish plus group into this great nation. Now what does that mean? If you remember from last week, it means that the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis, that he would be the father of many descendants, is being fulfilled. That said, at the same time, there are also threats to the promise. We already mentioned at the end of Genesis, the people of God had to leave the land of the promise and come to Egypt because of a famine. They are not in the land promised to Abraham. What's worse is that a new Pharaoh has come to power. A Pharaoh that does not know about Joseph 
and all of the good that he did for Egypt that we went over last week. This new Pharaoh sees the Israelites and their increasing numbers as a great threat. So what does he do? He enslaves them and even orders the slaughter of all their males under the age of two. So, a huge threat to the promise. Now Moses, the protagonist of this book, is at this point under two. And his family, to save him, puts him on a small ark on the river Nile to save him from this impending slaughter. And ironically, Pharaoh's daughter, according to the text, stumbles upon him at the river and decides to rear him. And so we see here Moses being providentially saved. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but unlike the Prince of Egypt movie that was really popular, what, like 20 years ago now? Crazy. Unlike in that movie, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's court knowing full well of his identity as an Israelite. So sorry to burst your bubble, but he doesn't just randomly find out one day. He knows full well he is not one of the Egyptians. He is an Israelite. One day, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a fellow Israelite. And Moses kills him. And for this, Moses has to flee to the wilderness. And when he flees and escapes and is in the wilderness, he settles there, he marries there, he becomes a shepherd. Moses was going to live the rest of his days as a pretty normal human being. But one day, while caring for his father-in-law's flock on Mount Sinai, he stumbles upon the strangest of sights. You all know this story. A bush that's burning but is not consumed. As he approaches the site, he hears a voice. This voice reveals itself as the God of his ancestors. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what's more, this voice reveals a name. A name that wasn't revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What many have referred to as the Tetragrammaton, or what you see up there, the Y-H-Y-Y, what many vocalize as Yahweh. This name means, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. This is, in a way, a specific name for the God of the people of Israel. The God and Father, we believe as Christians, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this name, while remaining mysterious, right? I will be what I will be. Uh, it also reveals something about the character of God. It reveals that God is free. That God is not dependent or indebted to his creation in any way. We talk about being liberated and becoming autonomous. No. Only God is the truly autonomous one. 
Yet, in this freedom, he has chosen to commit himself to the people of God. He did not need to commit himself to the people of God, but he has chosen in his freedom to do so. Now, in the narrative of the burning bush, God calls Moses to be a prophet. And a prophet is someone who will speak and act for God. And he will speak and act for God to Pharaoh. Now, when Moses confronts Pharaoh, the text presents their showdown as a struggle between God and the believed-to-be semi-divine Pharaoh. We see this especially with the great plagues that you probably know about. According to the story, at times, Pharaoh's henchmen are able to somehow match the miracle God performs through Moses. For example, the staff, when thrown on the ground, becoming a snake. In the story, Pharaoh's men are able to match that. But at the same time, it is made clear that the snakes of Moses, or better, of God, devour those of Pharaoh. Now we, and we see with the, if we fast forward to the last of the plagues, Pharaoh's men at this point are, are unable to duplicate or defend against these plagues. The f- first plagues that I'm talking about and the last plagues show God to be this divine warrior doing battle against all that would oppress his people. This is a boxing match, per se, even if the sides are so very unequal. Now, after the tenth and final plague, Pharaoh finally decides to let God's people go. That is, until he changes his mind and goes after them with the chariots. And after Pharaoh's men go after the people of God, we see the people of God are squeezed and trapped between the armies and between the Red Sea. There is no way forward. Much like we talked about last week, all hope seems completely lost. But the God of the promise does what he always does what we saw in Genesis, and what we see throughout the scriptures. He makes a way where there is no way. Again, here we see the chief act of salvation of the Old Testament. The paradigm of God's way with God's people for all times. So at the Red Sea, there's the parting of the waters, And we see God's people miraculously make it safely through to the other side. That said, the Egyptians who seek to re-enslave and destroy are drowned. And the women of Israel sing psalms of joy to commemorate their rescue and the great victory of God. This complete narrative of the battle with Pharaoh and the making of the way out of no way is the salvation 
of the people of God in Exodus. Now maybe you're like me, and at this point you're all like, well, well and good, but what about Pharaoh's men? What about the armies that came after Israel? They didn't experience salvation. They were crushed. Is this really good news? Well, on one level, these texts do portray an oppressor receiving their just desserts. We see judgment here, just like we saw judgment in Genesis. But on another and more profound level, in this narrative, we see God at war with the personification of the powers of sin and death. God at war with all that opposes and oppresses his people. The powers that enslave all humanity. So this isn't just for, this story isn't just for the ancient Jews. This story is for you and for me to free his people from the powers they must be done away with. Again, this is where the medieval church was not so wrong when they spiritualized a lot of the stories in the Old Testament. God is at war with all that enslaves you and me, all that gets in the way between you, me, and God. So we see in this story a foretaste of the doctrine we talked about last year, the doctrine of Christus Victor, or Christ as Victor. Or you might say God as Victor in this case. We see that even here in the Old Testament. God, being true to his promise, liberates by means of victory over the powers of sin and death. And this is part of the good news of the chief salvation event of the Old Testament. So now, moving along. After the exodus, after the crossing of the Red Sea waters, the Israelites travel to Mount Sinai. Again, if you remember, the place where God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. This is the same place. Here, God asks whether the people of God, whom he has just liberated, if they agree to be his people. And the people of God consent. Then Moses and the people of God receive the Ten Commandments, which maybe you're all familiar with, maybe you're not. But it's not just the Ten Commandments. They also receive what's oftentimes called the Book of the Covenant, which are the detailed code of ritual and civil laws that if you read Exodus, you read about and maybe you even kind of wondered about at times. But many of these laws are very culturally conditioned. Now God asked the Israelites to commit and to obey these laws. And they agree. And he promises them that the land of Canaan is theirs if they obey. And so we see what I said just a second ago. This covenant is not like the one we talked about last week. This covenant 
is a conditional covenant. That covenant was an unconditional covenant. And as we move ahead in the scriptures, you'll see how this distinction becomes very important to people like the Apostle Paul. But we're going to get there. That said, I want to problematize that easy distinction I made between the unconditional and the conditional covenant by saying that even the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God makes with Moses, this covenant, which sounds like it's all law, is also permeated through and through with grace. What I didn't mention is that on the journey from the Red Sea to Sinai, the Israelites in the wilderness, they complain, they grumble, they sin. And this is right before the making of the covenant. We're going to get into the wilderness wanderings much more next week because the book of Numbers is all about those. So I'm not going to focus in too much on that. But right after the giving of the law, what we'll talk about in a second, they also sin in an even more dramatic and profound way. So even though this covenant is an if-then conditional covenant, do this and you shall live, it is sandwiched by the grace and mercy of God. And we'll see more on that in just a second. Now after the giving of the law, Moses is also given this long and overly detailed blueprint of the tabernacle the Israelites were to make. The tabernacle being the place where God's presence would dwell among them as they wandered through the wilderness to the promised land. So after making, having made the covenant and having received the law and having received the blueprints for the tabernacle, Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and sees that the people of God have not remained faithful even for two seconds. What does he find? They've made an idol. This is the episode of the golden calf. So, the very first two commandments of the Ten Commandments are this. And I love the the KJV language, so I'm just going to say it to you in that. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. No gods before me, no graven image. What this means is that they have broken the covenant before the ink could even get dry. It is as if they committed adultery on their wedding night. That's the force of how the story is presented in the narrative. Now, with the Mosaic Covenant being conditioned on their obedience, the lead reader, you and I, especially if we're reading it for the very first time, we're wondering... Has this relationship been terminated at the outset? Have they ruined everything already? But it's at this time that Moses begs and pleads to God and intercedes for the people of God on their behalf. And the text presents Moses' faithfulness, his faithful intercession, again, on their behalf, as assuaging the rightful anger of God. 
And keep that in your head too, because as the scriptures unravel or unpack or they keep going, we'll see the notion of the faithful intercessor as very important, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. So stay tuned on that one. But it is at this point in the book of Exodus where we see that even within the confines of this conditional covenant, God's nature is revealed as merciful. This text makes clear that despite the stiff-necked nature of his people, he is, and I quote, merciful and slow to anger, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, even if at the same time he holds his people accountable to the third and fourth generations. So what does all of this mean? It means that from the very beginning, from the outset, the Mosaic Covenant is given to a forgiven and restored community. From the very beginning, the giving of the law and the covenant is sandwiched by two dramatic sins. This is not presented as, look how ideal the Israelites are. They are just flourishing. It's actually very different than if you remember in Acts 2. The early Christian community is presented as being so ideal. They share everything they own with everyone. Here in the conditional covenant, they aren't presented that way at all. They are presented like you and me. A stiff-necked people. Now it's from this point on in the book that the narrative's detail the building of the tabernacle. And they detail it to the exact specifications laid out in the blueprint. And if you read Exodus this week, or if you have in the past, this passage is so long. It's like 16 chapters, and it feels like it's never going to end. It seems very boring and unimportant to people like you and me. But it obviously wasn't to the original compilers of these books. And it wasn't unimportant to them because this is where God would dwell among his people. This has to do with their worship of God. And because the tabernacle is a precursor to the temple that we'll see created many books from now, The tabernacle is very important to the people of God. Again, what I said last week is for a lot of these books, they arrive at their final form either right before the exile or right after the exile, hundreds of years later. So these texts, these stories have imminent meaning for people living hundreds of years later. The temple is very important to these people living hundreds of years later. The tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple, very important. Again, this is where God dwells among his people in the wilderness. This is where God would dwell among them their whole way to the promised land. So when construction is finally completed, we witness the presence of God 
come down upon the tabernacle. It is as if the presence of God comes off of Mount Sinai and comes down and dwells in the tabernacle. After all the bolts and the bits have been put together, and it really is presented that way in the narrative, God comes down and the presence of God at Sinai will now accompany God's people in the wilderness on their journey to the promised land. Now that really is the book of Exodus. Again, a lot shorter this week, praise God. But in conclusion, I just want to say a few thoughts that kind of bring all this together. One, we have seen the chief act of salvation of the Old Testament. Again, the paradigm of God's way with God's people, not just then, but even now. Jake could have went on further and said, we see the paradigm of God's way with God's people with Martin Luther King. We see the paradigm of God's way with God's people and God coming against all that oppresses and opposes the people of God. All that gets in between us and Him. Two, we have the law as the revealed will of God. This is the will of God that we don't just come to on our own. It is revealed. And three, we have the building of what you might call a mobile temple for the Lord. In this book, we see what people call as, forgive me, God's theophany. It's a big word for God's appearance at the burning bush and at Sinai. His appearance there at the burning bush and at Sinai made a permanent presence with them in the tabernacle. So finally, and this is really it, this is the last paragraph I'm going to say. We see a people who were once servants or slaves of sin and death, Pharaoh, become servants of the Most High God. According to Exodus, the people of God are not set free from Pharaoh and left to their own devices. They are not their own lords and masters, for that would be equally a a place of slavery. According to Exodus, freedom is not autonomy. Freedom is being a servant of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who in his revealed will has given us the way of life. Even if we can't can't seem to follow it. Or in the words of the Book of Common Prayer that I prayed at the beginning, the service of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, His service is perfect freedom. We have been snatched from the realm of sin and death and brought into the realm of God the realm of freedom, even if we still have one leg or half our body or what feels like all of our body except 
our nostrils where we can breathe still in, enslaved to sin and death. So we see images like this that we'll see in the New Testament right here in the Old Testament. So again, the chief act of salvation of the Old Testament and for all time, God making a way out of no way is revealed here. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal Sanctuary Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live. Or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.